The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, one of our core values around here is that we fight for joy, okay? The value isn't simply joy. The value is that we fight for joy. Joy isn't something that we just automatically experience, is it? Um, We have to fight for it. And we fight for it in suffering. We fight for it in life. We fight for it even in worship of our God. As Christians, we, we also know that we aren't fighting to achieve or secure joy. Rather, joy has already been achieved and secured for us in Christ. The fight, therefore, is about appropriating joy. It's about experiencing what is already ours in Him. I want you to think for a a minute about a particular kind of joy, the joy that I want to call the joy of reversal or the joy of rescue. Um, let's Let's just say you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan, just for the sake of argument, all right? Um... You got a pretty big night going on tonight, don't you? You know, you're, you're taking on Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals in the AFC Conference Championship game tonight, a game, by the way, that they beat you in last year to punch their ticket to the Super Bowl. Um, but let's just say it's fourth quarter, and uh, one minute left in the game, no timeouts, and you're down two scores, okay? And uh, your quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, He's hobbling around on that bad ankle, that high ankle sprain, you know? He's got some problems, and he hasn't been looking good all game, and it's not looking good right now. In fact, the odds are completely against you somehow for pulling off this win. But Mahomes, he's out there, and he's gutting it out, and you're driving down the field, okay? And with just under a minute left to go, he, he finds Travis Kelsey across the middle, right? And he, he hits him for a 35-yard catch. Kelsey breaks 17 tackles and makes his way into the end zone touchdown. And so now you're only down one, one score. What do you do? Onside kick, of course. Of course, it's an onside kick. You line up. If you're not down with the football lingo, an onside kick is basically a trick kick, try to get the football back, okay? You kick this onside kick, and it works. You got the ball back now. Well, now things are really getting exciting, aren't they? Now there's 40 seconds left. You still need another touchdown, no timeouts. And in a miracle of Chiefs magic, Patrick Mahomes leads the team down, <clears throat> you know, throws a, a sidearm Jump shot pass while he's getting hit and flying down with two seconds left. Hits somebody in the end zone again. They line up for the two-point conversion. And against everyone's expectations, they they go for it. It's a quarterback keeper. And he hobbles in on that bad ankle into the end zone. And they win the game. Now, if that happened tonight and you're a Chiefs fan, you're going to be fired up, aren't you? You're going to be filled with joy. You're going to be so excited. You might break something when you're dancing in your living room. You know, everyone's going to be talking about it. Awesome game, awesome comeback. Chiefs fans everywhere will be rejoicing. Now, what if it was an even bigger comeback? I mean, that was a big one. What if it was even bigger? What if instead of being down two scores, you're actually down three scores with a minute to go? Like Joe Burrow's already got his cigar lit on the other sideline, right? And and, and what if instead of scoring and then recovering one onside kick, somehow you did it twice? And you threw two Hail Marys and you pulled off, you know, three scores in one minute and a two-point conversion to top it all off. It would be crazy. I mean, we would say that's impossible. It would be crazy. You'd rejoice even more. See, the greater the deficit, 
the greater the reversal. Or we might say the greater the rescue. And therefore, the greater the joy. Our joy, our rejoicing is proportional to our rescue. But we have to fight for it. As we wrap up the book of Esther this morning, this is essentially what we see. A great deficit. All the odds are stacked against God's people. Haman's edict is out. They are scheduled to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. And yet, as we saw last week, a great reversal has begun. A great rescue. And the joy, the rejoicing of God's people that we see at the end of the book of Esther is proportional to their rescue. They celebrate in this passage. In in fact, uh, because the rescue is so great, they institute an annual celebration to commemorate it. Like They're going to party every single year over this. (laughs) They call it Purim. And it's actually why the book of Esther was written. The author, who of course wrote sometime after the events that we read of here, the author tells us the true story of Esther and Mordecai and the great reversal in order to say, this is why we celebrate Purim. It's why the book of Esther was and even still is read every year on Purim by the Jewish people. It was an annual reminder to God's people to to fight for joy. To rejoice over God's deliverance. To rejoice over his reversal, the rescue. Rejoice over him preserving his people for his purpose, for his glory. (laughs) And we're picking up in chapter 8 today, and we'll go all the way to the end. And while you're turning to Esther chapter 8 in your copy of the scripture, let's just remember briefly where we are in the story. We're in the midst of a vast and expansive and powerful empire, aren't we? Ruled by the most powerful man in the world, King Ahasuerus, the Persian king. But Esther, a young orphan Jewish girl who has been raised by her Jewish cousin Mordecai, who happened to work in the king's court, Esther, through a rather unique path, has become King Ahasuerus' queen. She's the queen of Persia. King Ahasuerus had a right-hand man named Haman who hated Mordecai, hated all the Jews actually, and used his position of power to send out an edict with the king's approval, stamped with the king's signet ring. In fact, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, okay, spanning India to Ethiopia, basically the whole, almost the whole entire known world, with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Okay, so this edict was written in the first month of the year. The annihilation was therefore scheduled to occur in less than a year's time. The clock is ticking against God's people. Right? It's, it's the fourth quarter, and there's no timeouts. Well, remember that when Mordecai heard of this, he pleads to Esther to plead to the king to reverse this edict and to save the people of God. Last week, then, Esther risked her life, went before the king, threw him a couple of dinner parties, and eventually got the ask out. In the midst of this, Haman, last week, was revealed for who he really is, a prideful and hate-filled man. Mordecai is revealed for who he really is, a man who foiled an assassination plot against the king some years ago. Mordecai then, who was set to be hung on the 75-foot-high gallows that were built by Haman, he's instead exalted. 
while Haman is hung on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And so we see that a a great reversal has begun. And chapter 8 begins by telling us, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told her what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which had been taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Okay, so Haman's dead. Mordecai is now in his place. Esther is still queen. Things seem to be going better, but, but, there's still that original edict out there. For all God's people everywhere, young and old, male and female, to be annihilated in roughly nine months' time. Every one of the covenant people of God are still under a death sentence. And that's where we pick up now in Esther chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, but before we go further, let me say this. There is, there is a gospel breeze that blows through the book of Esther. And though it's never explicit, there's all kinds of hints of it. Gospel gusts, <laughs> if you will, that if we'll hold out a wet thumb, <laughs> we'll catch it. We'll catch it. Esther chapter 8, verse 3, begins by saying, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She risks her life again to mediate on behalf of God's people. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Verse 4, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if these things seem right before the king, if I am pleasing in his eyes, then let an order be written to revoke. Mark that word, revoke. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred. Now, there's actually, there's actually a twofold problem going on here, okay? First, uh, Twitter hadn't been invented yet. That's a problem, okay? The king can't just send out a quick little message to everyone everywhere and say, hashtag, never mind, okay? Face palm emoji, you know? Can we just like not, just let's like not worry about that thing that Haman sent out. Let's just all forget. There's a communication problem here, see? There would have been a elaborate delivery scheme that was used to distribute that original edict throughout the vast empire. Um, all 127 provinces weren't on Slack, okay? Um, there was no group, nobody had nobody started a group me for this sort of thing, and um, nobody really liked Realm, so they weren't using it, right? Um, which means that the same level of elaborate delivery scheme is going to be needed to get the word out, to get the word out that the plan has changed now. Don't kill God's people after all. That's what Esther is asking for here, a message to revoke the edict that was sent out by Haman. But there's actually a, actually a bigger problem here than that. And we see it if we keep reading in verse 7. It says, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. And seal it with the king's ring. 
For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be what? Revoked. See, when King Ahasuerus refers to the edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the ring and not being able to be revoked, he's, he's actually referring not just to what they will write, but also to what's already been written. Haman's edict. See, the, the Persians had a law that when an edict went out from the king, that that edict could not be revoked. We read of this actually in Daniel chapter 6, where King Darius, Ahasuerus' predecessor, is appealed, to those, um, is appealed to by those who were trying to get Daniel thrown into the lion's den. You remember this? They want Darius to establish an ordinance that whoever prays to someone other than the king is going to get thrown in that den of lions. And they say this in verse 8, Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Well, if you know the story, the king does establish, King Darius, he does establish that injunction. Immediately following then in Daniel 6, Daniel goes into his room, opens up the window, prays three times a day to Yahweh, and the bad guys see it. They, they go back to the king again, and what do they say? O king! Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and sent his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. He couldn't figure out a way out of it, could he? The decree was set. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, just reminding him again, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Look at this. Three times in Daniel 6, this point is made. The edict cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed. We have the same thing going on here in Esther chapter 8. There's a communication problem, sure, but far more significant than that, we have a legal problem. The king can't just revoke Haman's edict. The only thing that can be done is for a new edict to be cleverly devised to counteract the prior one. Now, pause here for a minute and put your thumb in the air to detect a gospel breeze. <laughs> There's an irrevocable decree of death against the people. <laughs> Does that sound familiar at all? Apart from Jesus, aren't we all sinners with an irrevocable decree of death against us? After all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's a gospel wind brewing here. If we keep reading in verse 9, we get the new edict cleverly devised to counteract Haman's. The king's scribes, verse 9, were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, in the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, 
to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on that 13th day, the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Two observations to make here. All right, first, if you compare this section of chapter 8 back with Esther chapter 3, you'll see that a precise reversal is occurring. It's not just a great reversal. There's a precision to this reversal occurring. Mordecai's edict is written by the same scribes. Same scribes as Haman's. It's sent to the same people in the same way, translated in the same languages, delivered by the same couriers, riding on the same swift horses, publicly displayed in the same places. Word for word, it precisely counters the original edict, cleverly allowing God's people to defend their lives and to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, same precise wording, anyone who attacks them. Even precisely mirrors the original edict authorizing them to kill even the women and children of their attackers and to plunder their goods. On the very same day of the very same month that the original edict declared their destruction, it's sealed with the very same ring. This is a precise reversal going on here. A second observation is made with spiritually wet thumbs in the air where we contemplate another precise reversal, namely, when Jesus Christ came and lived the life that you should have lived but couldn't, and then died the death that you deserve to die but won't. He died in your place for your sins, bearing the wrath that was owed to you. With eyes of faith, we see a gospel message being sent out in the text too, don't we? Good news of great joy for all the peoples. A deliverance has come. A precise reversal that means, in the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones in that Jesus Storybook Bible, that everything sad was coming untrue. Then Mordecai, verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Look at him, church. Mordecai, robed, crowned, second in command in the empire. It's almost like, hail, king of the Jews. 
There's a big old gust of gospel wind here. When we compare, for example, to John 19, just prior to the precise reversal of Christ dying in your place for your sins, where the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on Jesus' head and arrayed him with a purple robe and said mockingly, to be sure, Hail, King of the Jews. The timeline is different, but the gospel breezes here. Don't miss it. And verse 15 says, after this, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced as Mordecai came out with this crown and his robes on the city rejoices. Again, the precise reversal at the end of chapter 3, when Haman's edict went out, Susa, we read, was thrown into confusion. Now the city rejoices. Verse 16 says the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict was reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The good news is spreading, church. It's taking hold. It's met with gladness and joy and celebration. There's even people who are not God's people who hear of the plan to deliver God's people and they declare themselves to be God's people. The NASB translation actually reads that many of the peoples of the land became Jews. Whether that's true conversion or whether that's them simply operating out of fear that they might be mistaken for an enemy of the Jews and get dropped in paddle, we're not sure. But perhaps what we could see here is seed being sown. Like Jesus' parable of the sower. We're not sure what kind of soil it's fallen upon. But the good news is going out. That brings us to chapter 9, which brings us to the 12th month, which is the month of Adar and the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. (laughs) The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, as verses 7 through 9 record, the 10 sons of Haman. But they laid no hand on the plunder, we're told. Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have destroyed 500 men. 
and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And we're not exactly sure why the king gives this report to Esther, nor are we sure why he asks, you know, what more she wants. Perhaps he's tipping her off here. Perhaps he knows that there are more enemies of the Jews and he knows that they're in Susa and they've not yet been destroyed. Perhaps it's just simply a report of what happened. And Esther knows that there's more enemies who she suspects will attack the Jews on the following day. Maybe she's got some secret intel, right? Either way, Esther says, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows, a clear warning sign to others who might be interested in causing this coup, causing trouble with God's people. It's also a, a very clear message, right? Hey, this is, this is over. Verse 14, So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, a few observations are in order here because this part makes us a little uneasy, doesn't it? To see God's people taking up arms, killing others. It's uneasy. But first, let's notice, this isn't God's people on the offensive. What we have here is self-defense in the face of genocide. Mordecai's edict was not permission to attack their enemies but rather only to defend themselves if and when attacked on this one particular day. And when they do, we're told three times in the text, they laid no hands on the plunder. God's people are, are not in this for gain. They're merely defending themselves against annihilation. Secondly, both edicts would have been posted for months now. Okay, by the time we reach the month of Adar, some, remember, actually went so far to declare themselves Jews when the second edict went out. Even those who didn't, there was plenty of time for them to halt their plans to kill, destroy, and annihilate. But instead, when they heard the second edict, they doubled down. It says that they hated the Jews. They hated God's people. They doubled down. Still, we, we don't like this. I mean, this is uncomfortable reading. We don't like death. We don't like destruction or judgment or wrath. And yet, we have to come to terms with these things if we're Christians, don't we? After all, death and damnation, eternal destruction. The Bible teaches is what we all deserve apart from the rescue of Jesus. Here, it's God's covenant people who are delivered from all of their enemies. 
See, when you read 75,000, that's a big number, right? I mean, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of people. And one way to read that is to say, wow, they killed a lot of people. Another way to read that is to say, wow, they had a lot of enemies. And God delivered them from them all. Lastly, I want us to notice here that what is celebrated isn't the killing of others. What they celebrate isn't the day of battle, like some famous battles that are celebrated year after year around the world. What they celebrate is the day after the battle. Pick it up in verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. This is the the author here sort of clearing up a discrepancy about why some Jews celebrate on one day and some celebrate on the other. Their, Their celebration, though, their festival held every year, year after year, it doesn't celebrate victory in battle. Like the rejoicing isn't malicious glee over the destruction of their enemies. No, they celebrate, we're told in verse 22, the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday. They celebrate not the slaughter, but the salvation. They celebrate the great reversal, the rescue, and it was an immense reversal, an immense rescue. God's people were at a great deficit. They were down a million with a minute left in the fourth with no timeouts. They were set up to be annihilated. Listen, they were nobodies, exiles in the midst of a vast and inescapable and powerful empire. They were essentially, before all this began, powerless, vulnerable, struggling even with their identity as the people of God. And yet through the hidden providence of God, they're delivered. They're rescued. Here we have the greatest deficit met with the greatest rescue, which calls for the greatest rejoicing. Their rejoicing, we can say, was proportional to their rescue. And so they celebrate it every year. They call it Purim because Haman had cast Pur, that's lots, in order to determine the day of when to destroy the Jews. Remember that? They call it Purim, perhaps mocking chance and declaring trust instead in the one who is in control over everything, working his hidden providence in all things to preserve his people for his glory. Verse 27 says the Jews firmly, firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city. That these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews 
nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Still today, pyramids celebrated annually by the Jews in early spring. To celebrate, they send gifts of food to, to friends and to loved ones. They do acts of charity for the poor. Each year, the book of Esther is read in its entirety in the synagogues. While it's read, I understand it's normal actually for noisemakers to be brought in and used. And for people to cheer out loud when Mordecai's name is read and to boo and to hiss when Haman's name is read. It's a time of prescribed drinking, actually, and celebrating. Prescribed. <laughs> One account says actually that the drinking is prescribed until one can no longer tell the difference between Mordecai be blessed and Haman be cursed. That's some celebrating, all right? Great rejoicing. Maybe a little too far, we understand. Right? Drunkenness is a sin. The rest of chapter 9 tells us of the formalizing of this annual celebration then with Queen Esther and Mordecai making an authoritative declaration of the institution, obligating Purim to be kept alongside the other traditional celebrations as God's people. Lastly then in chapter 10, we see the great reversal finalized with Mordecai the Jew, second in rank to King Ahasuerus, being great among the Jews, popular with the multitude of his brothers, it says, seeking the welfare of his people and speaking peace to all his people, which is the exact opposite that God's people experienced under Haman, isn't it? The great reversal, complete. Now, as we close out Esther, let's put some of these gospel gusts together and kind of draw out a nice gospel breeze of application, shall we, before we're in. First, for the unbeliever, hey, if you're here and you don't trust in Jesus, what you need to hear is that there is, there is in fact, an edict out against you, an edict of damnation and eternal destruction. I know that's uncomfortable. It's supposed to be. But the Bible does teach that we have all sinned. The Bible does teach that the wages of sin is death. It does teach that hell is real and those who do not trust in Jesus will spend eternity there with weeping and gnashing of teeth. No one likes to think about that. But it's what our Christian scriptures teach because it's true. And the most loving thing that you can hear this morning, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, is actually that hell awaits you. You're at a great deficit. Time is running out. And yet, there's another edict that goes out, isn't there? We call it the gospel. The good news of the precise reversal of Jesus who came and lived the life that you should have lived but couldn't, who died the death you deserve to die but don't have to, not if you trust in him. No, for those who trust in him, his death counts as yours. He dies in your place for your sin and everything that is his, right standing with the Father, eternal life, peace, joy, all that becomes yours. Not because you deserve it, not because you earn it not because you've somehow proven yourself to be worthy of it. 
No, he freely gives it to sinners like us who trust in him, which means anyone can get in on this. Anyone. The gospel edict is out. It perfectly and precisely counters the first edict line by line all the way down. Will you become a Christian? Will you trust in Christ? Will you identify yourself with God's people, trusting in Jesus and even being baptized to publicly proclaim your identity with him and what he's done in you, that he saved you? For Christians in the room, as individuals, as we read Esther and see the great reversal with spiritually wet thumbs in the air, we catch the gospel breeze, don't we? And we're reminded of the great reversal that Jesus accomplished for us. We were lost and dying. We were children of wrath, and yet in Christ, all of that has changed. A great reversal has come in you. And the more you understand what you were saved from, the more you grow in your understanding of your sinfulness, the greater you understand that deficit, well, then the greater we will understand the rescue, and the greater the rescue, the greater the rejoicing. Whatever is going on in your life today, Whatever is wrong in your life today, you can fight for joy and experience the joy that is yours in Christ. Your joy is, your rejoicing is not proportional to your current circumstances. Your joy, our joy, is proportional to our rescue and what we have been rescued from, church. What we have been rescued from is the worst that we can imagine. Our rescue is incredible. Our rejoicing is proportional to our rescue, and as Christians, we understand just how immense that rescue really was. Lastly, collectively as God's people, we rejoice too. The book of Esther reminds us, right? It paints Romans 8.28 out in real life history for us, reminding us that for those who love God, all things really do work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. His hidden hand is always at work. Nothing is going to separate us from his love for us. King Jesus King Jesus will one day return and fully and finally defeat all of our enemies, including death. He will one day return crowned and robed and speak peace to all his people. He hasn't forgotten for us. He hasn't forgotten us. He's coming back for us. He will right every wrong. He will perfectly rule and perfectly reign. This is promised to us. And we can trust in it because we are his new covenant people. Church, a great rescue has come and our rejoicing is to be proportional to our rescue. We have everything to celebrate. And if you're one of those people who just needs something like super tangible, 
to write down and do this week, you know, as application? Buy a ticket to the Bride of Christ party. It's basically our version of Purim, right? Every year, all we do, get together and celebrate who we are as God's new covenant people, his bride. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice now knowing that in Christ we are your bride and we always will be. Fill us with joy now as we reflect on our rescue. Make us increasingly those who fight for joy. Those who experience and even then reflect to the world around us the joy that's been secured for us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.